family. So this is uh, Friday evening in the West and uh, 9 a.m. on Saturday morning here in Thailand. What is the date? Thirteenth here. Okay, so um, Ian, <clears throat> excuse me. Miguel has asked a question about family, and there's several different ways that you can talk about it. Um, the first thing is to uh, many people will say, "Oh, well, the only way to follow the Dhamma is to ordain." and leave the family. That in fact, the, uh, the family um, is a very, very good place to practice if things are correct. And basically, uh, as we age, uh, the family becomes more and more important. That I would say that for uh, in the early life, let us say after the teen years, at the time when most in the West young people leave their family to go to university, to go to the army, to go to get a job, things like this. And this is the time when it's actually a good idea for people to move away from their family, to get, get a broader understanding that in fact at the age of 20 is the age for full ordination. And that there's something similar about the army and uh, the bhikkhu sangha or going into any religious thing. And that is, is that they get away from the family. It would not be possible for an army to recruit young men and let them stay at home and do army training during the day. So they want them 24 hours a day to get away from their family so that they can indoctrinate them into whatever armies indoctrinate them into, uh, break them down, et cetera, like that. This is also true uh, that in fact, I've even seen it with psychology. The psychologists will recommend to a young new client after they find out that there's a lot going on in that family is to recommend for you to get away from your family go someplace else go find something new okay so that whole idea then about um uh at a particular time of life it's really really good to get separated from the old family especially if it's an ordinary family it's not steeped in, say, uh, the Buddha Dhamma. Uh, but in fact, if the family itself was steeped in the Buddha Dhamma, then this issue probably wouldn't arise. And so um, <clears throat> now we have a little bit older person who is thinking about, oh, I want to go join the Sangha, but here I have a wife and kids. For this guy, it's not a good idea that um, the relationship with the woman in the West is very, very strong relationship. 
with a man and a woman. But basically in the Asian cultures and other places like that, the kids become the more important point. And so if a man uh, is in his 30s and is married, it may not be such a big deal for him to go and leave his wife and go and become a monk. That's something that they can work out. But if he has young kids, then it would be a very difficult thing for him to leave the wife with those kids to go join some religious organization. Hello, Robert. Good to see you. Hi, everyone. Great to see you guys. Hey, Robert. Miguel is asking questions about family, and so we're going to be talking about family today. And we talked about a young man about the age of 20. It's good for him to get away from family. And then we moved into 10 years later when the guy's in his 30s. And then he uh, is thinking about leaving the family to go ordained. It depends upon whether he's got kids or not. That if he uh, has just a relationship with a woman, then that relationship can be worked out. And there's many different possibilities for it to work out. One of them would be that uh, the ordination is only going to be temporary, a couple of years or something like that, a little bit more. And then the deal is, is that the woman will wait on him to come out of the monkhood. And they still have kind of an intellectual relationship. Or they can kiss goodbye and go their separate ways. Or... The other possibility is for to also ordain. And so this would be the situation, but if they got kids, that changes everything. And then I would recommend for that man to wait until your kids are ready to leave home. And when they leave home, then you can too. And then there is uh, the more middle-aged guy uh, that has older kids and the question now for him about does he go and ordain or does he stay with the family? The answer to that would be that maybe it's a better idea to stay uh, at home rather than ordain because there is so much that can be done when you're a layman dealing with the world. That in fact, I have heard guys say that if I go to the Watt, it's going to be easy. Well, that's the whole point of going to the Watt is to make your life easy. But that he wants to stay at home because he will, uh, in his mind, uh, get rid of the defilements because those defilements, you know, like a defilement is kind of like an open wound. That in fact, the word asava uh, in the Pali, there's two words. The one, one word is asava and the other one is kilesa. The, uh, the word kilesa normally means a bondage or a fetter. But an asava is more like um, an outflow, a canker, a pus pocket, an open wound. Okay, so something that's sensitive also. And so if we think of it as an asabai, if the man is going to then stay at home uh, to practice the Dhamma, 
that means that he's walking around with open wounds that are going to get touched and pushed. It may be better for people to go to the what and live alone and let that stuff heal and then go back into the world rather than trying to deal with the stuff when they're in the world. But if we do have the skills that we can handle that, and one of the ways I'm handling that is, is by finding where the wounds are and binding them up and giving them the proper nourishment and care so that they uh, will not be uh, an issue when we're still dealing with the world. Now, anyone at any age can do this, that I was giving those indications about what age someone is based upon many different circumstances. But in any case, we can either deal well with the world or we can deal better alone. But if we deal better alone and get uh, the Asapa cured, get the healing done, then we could go out in the world and be of enormous value to ourselves and to others. And so the way that I talk about it is um, that we need to learn to make friends with ourselves, to cure ourselves, to take care of the asava on the inside, recognizing that we are, in fact, a set of open wounds walking around in public of another group of people. Each one is an open wound. And everybody's walking around as a husk, a, uh, um, a boil, um, covered with boil sometimes. So uh, when we recognize that everyone's like that, the only way that we will know how to properly deal with them is because we have learned to properly deal with ourselves on the inside anyway. And so if we are, uh, we can either go completely to the watch and then, deal, and then have nothing much to deal with but our own issues, or we can stay layman and stay in the world and practice sometimes to get rid of the uh, asava on our own. And then we can deal with others easier because they're not pushing our buttons so much. In fact, I like that quality of pushing the buttons. The buttons are the asava, but we call them buttons when in fact what they are, they're wounds. A button, somebody can push a button and it doesn't mean anything unless it's connected up to something like a bomb. <laughs> and and so uh, we can think of then uh, push the buttons are actually open wounds that we carry around, and they won't and we want to protect them. We do not like to be criticized, for instance. That's one of the open wounds that we generally carry around. Is oh, this is who I am. Don't tell me I'm not that. I'm something else. And so. Um, criticism we don't handle very well we're not taught to handle criticism very well in fact we teach our children the exact opposite in the sense that we teach them oh don't criticize your little friend johnny because he's sensitive 
rather than going to uh, to little Johnny and say, hey, man, buck up. You're going to have a whole lot of criticism in the world. Get used to it. And so we actually want in our society to protect other people's wounds without actually healing those wounds. But a Dhamma dude who is actually practicing the Dhamma is actually then working with salving and healing his own wounds. And by doing so, he is getting the skills necessary to help others stab and heal their own wounds also. And so um, we have many different possibilities of how to spend our lives in this way about our interactions with other people. And that is, is that number one, are we going to continue to live our lives where everybody, including ourselves, is full of these pus pockets, these open wounds, these buttons that could get pushed? Or are we going to spend enough time away so that we can begin to heal and then come back, get those button pushed again, and then come back and do some more healing, then come back into the world and get some buttons pushed again, and then come back and, uh, and heal again? This is the way that, in fact, it looks like the Western Buddhism is getting set up. That people will do a little bit of meditation practice and get themselves uh, going to a retreat, maybe get some of the stuff uh, cleaned out. Then they come back to the world and, oh, it's a disaster. And in fact, one of the stories that we have about it is, is that there was a, uh, a young Western man who went to Tibet, stayed there for a while, and then did a three-year retreat. And he was alone for all of that time. When he came out of that retreat, it was time for him to go travel again. And somebody offered him a ride. And when he got into that car, he couldn't handle even the car. He hadn't cleaned out all of the buttons while he was in seclusion. He just couldn't handle even with being in a car with other people. He wanted to stop that car and let him out. So that's part of the problem that total seclusion can have is, is that we can get such a comfortable environment where we're not getting our buttons pushed at all and so we don't actually deal with those buttons that in fact it may be a better system the way that we're setting it up so that we practice a little then we come back in and test it then we go back and we practice some more and we come back and test it we come back and practice some more, and then when we come back and test it, we recognize now we're getting someplace. Now I can handle things that I used to not handle. Now I can handle that woman yelling at me, where before I couldn't handle it. And then we go a little bit later. <laughs> yes, Robert, I knew you didn't raise your hand on that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, actually, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Robert. Um, so I was reading um, the writings of the Zen master Dogen from the 12th century earlier today. And there's a, a passage where he's asked a question about householders being able to attain the Buddha way. And I have a, I can read it. It's a good passage. It's not too long. And, and I think it could be fun to bring in when you're when you're ready okay. for it. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Read it now. That would be good if you've got it. OK, great. So here's the question. 
Home leavers are free from various involvements and do not have hindrances in zazen, zazen is Zen meditation, in pursuit of the way. How can members of the laity who are variously occupied practice single-mindedly and accord with unconstructed Buddha Dhamma? And this is what Dogen said. Here's his answer. Buddha ancestors, out of their kindness, have opened the wide gate of compassion in order to let all sentient beings enter realization. Who among humans and heavenly beings cannot enter? If you look to back to ancient times, the examples are many. To begin with, emperors die and shun had many obligations on the throne. Nevertheless, they practiced zazen in pursuit of the way and penetrated the great way of Buddha ancestors. Ministers Li and Fang both closely served their emperors, but they practiced zazen, pursued the way, and entered realization in the great way of Buddha ancestors. This just depends on whether you have the willingness or not. It does not matter whether you are a layperson or home leaver. Those who can discern excellence invariably come to this practice. Those who regard worldly affairs as a hindrance to Buddha Dhamma think only that there is no Buddha Dhamma in the secular world. They do not understand that there is no secular world in Buddha Dhamma. Recently, there was a high official of Great Song, Minister Fang, who is an adept in the ancestor's way. He once wrote a poem concerning his view of practice. I enjoy zazen between my official duties and seldom sleep lying on a bed. Although I appear to be a minister, I'm known as a Buddhist elder throughout the country. Although he was busy in his official duties, he attained the way because he had a deep intention toward the Buddha way. When considering someone like him, reflect on yourself and illuminate the present and the past. In Song, China, kings and ministers, officials and common people, men and women grounded their intention on the ancestor's way. Both warriors and literary people aroused the intention to practice Zen and study the way. Among those who, who pursued this intention, many of them illuminated their mind ground. From this, we understand that worldly duties do not hinder the Buddha Dhamma. When the true Buddha Dhamma is spread widely in the nation, the rule of the monarch is peaceful because all Buddhas and Devas protect it unceasingly. If the rule is peaceful, the Buddha Dhamma gains eminence. Mm -hmm. And last little part. When Shakyamuni Buddha was alive, even those who previously had committed serious crimes or had mistaken views attained the way. In the assemblies of the ancestors, hunters and woodcutters attained enlightenment. And so it was so for them at that time. It is so for anyone now. Just seek the teaching of an authentic master. Well, that was a little long, but it was, in fact, just what we're uh, teaching about. Uh, we have actually many, many examples of that. Uh, let's start with the time of the Buddha. That uh, the Buddha set up the Sangha simply because it did not exist. Yet there was uh, um, the existence of, uh, and it was common at the time, for Brahmins and others to just leave the society and go off looking for spiritual attainment that the Buddha did uh, as when he was Gautama. Uh, uh, he was following the, uh, a path that's old, open, 
there are many people who do want to leave the world, but they don't know how. But in fact, uh, as Western Buddhism grows, there will become many, many people who want to devote their lives to the Dhamma, to give themselves over to the Dhamma, and would like to uh, leave the world, especially the working world. And so they say, well, how can I live the Dhamma, be the Dhamma? I'll be a Dhamma teacher, but I've still got to eat. Therefore, I'm going to charge money for the Dhamma teaching. And that's what we're uh, looking for is a way around that so that when people do want to devote their lives to the Dhamma, that they can find a way of supporting or being supported by uh, a community. This is what the Sangha really was all about in the beginning that the Buddha had enough friends in high places so the next meal was never going to be an issue. And that became a tradition even in Thailand where the monks, they go out for breakfast and they get a whole bowl full. People are standing there waiting on the road to give them food because there is no money in it. Um, another way of looking at it from that perspective is, is that uh, the teaching of the Buddha is a teaching of generosity, and that is also one of the hallmarks of other religions, is to teach generosity. And when we practice generosity, then there's always going to be enough. And so getting out of the mentality of money and into the mentality of friendship and cooperation and generosity was what the entire Sangha was set up for in the first place. Now what has happened in the past 25 years is all of this tradition and ways that are supposed to be done because they did it that way one time. An example is um, uh, the change uh, has made a, a major uh, influence. And okay, and what I'm talking about now are two things. One is dye, and the other one is synthetic cloth. Before you know, more than a hundred years ago, for many, many centuries, the katina ceremony was important because the, the clothing rotted every year. You had to have new clothes because they didn't last. Not only that, but the dyes were not good and they and the clothes faded. But now we have clothes that'll keep their same color and stay good for 10, 15, or 20 years. So the whole issue then in fact the whole time that I was a monk, I had about two different robes. That's all I had, especially from 2002 until I just robed in two, uh, uh, 2008 for the same robe. That couldn't have been done 100 years ago. So the times have changed. That's one thing. Another one is electric lighting and other things like this. But back in the time of the Buddha, of all the people who really did want to take refuge in the Buddha, some of them joined the Sangha and others remained householders. It looks like, in fact, that most of the people who did um, uh, come to the Buddha for refuge remained householders, property owners. They had families, they had a business, etc., like that. And one of the things that the Buddha recommended for those guys was to give the business over to other members of the family, especially the wife. Because women really do like to be bosses and they really wind up being good bosses. 
The only reason why women are not bosses is because men will beat them up when the white, when the women become bosses. But within the uh, the Dhamma, we want to work it so that we give the, the women in our lives 100% support for them running their own lives and ours too. Um, that there's two stories that I want to tell. One is uh, Mula Nasruddin is uh, uh, a story. It's actually uh, an Islamic joke book that I ran across when I was in India. And Mula Nasruddin is part of the show. He's the one who has every one of these uh, issues. And so one time the guys came to him and says, oh, well, what do you do? And, and uh, Nat, Mula Nasruddin says, well, I only do really important things. And my wife takes care of all of the unimportant stuff. They said, well, what do you mean? And he says, well, she takes care of the unimportant stuff, like where do we live, what kind of car we have, what kind of clothes, what school the kids go to, all of the stuff that's really not important. I let the wife do that. And you know something, I've learned a lot from that book because I let my own wife, uh, Tam, she does all of the unimportant stuff. She does all the shopping, all the working, all the housekeeping, all the food cooking, everything. She takes care of all of that. And I only do unimportant or the important stuff, like talking to you guys on <laughs> Skype. <laughs> And so this is a way of handling the, the lay life and that most of the students of the Buddha stayed laymen, hanging out at their homes and going to the Wad occasionally to, uh, to keep their friendships going, but that uh, we can dedicate our lives to the Dhamma. That's in fact uh, a really good point about this is, is that we don't have to, to leave the world. We stay in the world, but that we can arrange the world so that we only do important things in the world. But if we can't do that, then the right thing to do is to ordain. And the word ordain means basically just take a hike and go stay in the woods, go live in the forest. <laughs> Maybe you'll find some really uh, noble hobos that are staying in the forest also. <laughs> And so this is what the Sangha was all about in the first place. It was just a bunch of noble hobos that sat around because they had no place to go and nothing to do except in the morning. They went out for breakfast and then they came back and sat down with nothing to do and no place to go. But you can do that also whether you're sitting uh, in a mansion or you are sitting in the woods. The mansion or the woods is not the issue once the mind is, is cleaned out or in the process. And in fact, uh, Dojin is talking about that ministers and royal family members, etc. This is also true very much in Thailand. Um, that it is well known in Thailand that the royal family of Thailand have had monarchs. Thailand has had monarchs that were noble. The one that's the most striking, I think, is King Mongu, who was king, let us say, from the, in the 1840s through into the 1860s. He's the one 
who, by the way, abolished slavery in Thailand. King Mongu, by the way, is the king that is in the king, uh, uh, the king and I, uh, the movie of the 1950s. And I wanted to mention that because the Thai people really love the movie. There was so much that was done correctly, but they hate Yule Brenner because he was the one who played King Mongood, and Ewell Brenner was more of a cowboy shoot 'em up kind of dude in that movie, and and his personality was nothing like King Mongood. And so they they were unhappy with the the uh, King Mongood because it's traditionally in Thailand known that he was noble, even though he had like 47, 48 children. But he had a noble mind, and that one of his sons was Chula Longhorn, who became the king, and he stayed the king from like 1870, about 50 years, up until uh, 1910, 12, something like that. Well, he had a younger brother who was born in 1860, uh, Wichun, and Wichun uh, became a monk. He was eight years younger than Chula Longhorn. And when he became a monk, he and his brother supported the monkhood and actually reformed Thai Buddhism completely. They started Islamic youth, they changed the robes and, and uh, got better translations and all of this kind of stuff. And then um, after his brother died, Tula uh, Longhorn died, Tula uh, Longhorn's son became the king but this monk who had been born in 1860 and reformed Thai Buddhism, he was now the patriarch of Buddhism. He was the Samdet Sankaraj, and he disrobed in order to become the regent. And so he went back to the Lelak, and he spent three or four years as the regent, but he still was deeply involved in Sangha. And he, in fact, uh, then... Uh, was instrumental in having the next Sangha Rock uh, or, uh, uh, brought up. The, the, the prime minister or the king, the, in fact, the word Sangha Raj means the king of the, uh, uh, the Sangha. Sundet is also the word. So he's the top monk in Thailand. And so he chose the next top monk in Thailand was Bhikkhu uh, uh, Buddha Gosajarn. And he became uh, some that in like 1920, which really now gets into uh, 10 years later, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa made the fupa of teaching the, uh, the noble Dhamma to ordinary people and got into trouble about it. Well, that's how he met uh, the Samdad Sankaraj and Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa actually became the student of this Samdad Sankaraj. And so this is the story that we go back to with other things to prove that the king of Thailand was noble. Back to Mangu was noble. That his son, Tulalongkorn, uh, was noble. That there's, uh, this other son, Wichau, was noble. And that the royal family of Thailand, that in fact, uh, the recent uh, king that died, uh, Rama Nine, I think, uh, was also known as noble, even 
just recently. What did he do? Well, one of the things he did uh, when they had a lot of trouble with the pollution, he personally donated 100 motorcycles to the police. He reformed the police department uh, with, with those kinds of things. Uh-oh, somebody's uh, uh, pushed a button. <laughs> Let's get it back again. So, um, we are now talking about the issue of um, royal families and um, other things that was brought up because of the, the stuff that Ocean had written. So, being noble, being high, or excuse me, being at the top of society does not, um, let us say, uh, excommunicate you from the Dhamma, that it's uh, excommunication is something that they have in the Catholic Church, that if you become a Christian, a monk, you can't quit. If you quit, you're excommunicated, you're out. And in fact, we have that, I, I learned this when I was an employee of IBM, that they have a rule that if you quit IBM, you will never work for IBM again. Then I found out that there's a whole lot of companies that are like that. They have it set up to where if you quit, you don't come back. And they use that as an incentive to stay, like in the Catholic Church. Where in the Sangha, there, uh, the history is seven times. That in the time of the Buddha, there was a dude who ordained and he went uh, and, and stayed a couple of years. And then there was a famine or a drought and his family needed him to come back and work. He disrobed, he went back home, he did what his mommy wanted him to do, and then he came back. And that happened seven times in his lifetime. So that's now the tradition. If he had been nine, then the tradition would be nine. But uh, uh, the top dude of the number of ordinations that he had was seven times. That means that we all can look at it at seven times. Now, in Thailand, they've changed that to three for some reason. That you can ordain three times. They also have the idea that you don't ordain when you are so old that you become only dependent uh, to the Dhamma or to the Sangha. That when you are uh, so the age doesn't matter, but but the traditional time in Thailand was 55 would be the last time that you can ordain. And I found out that that's not true at all. That it may be some places, but you, if you want to ordain, we can find and be, and arrange for a very, very high quality monk to, uh, who has been a monk for more than 40 years who will take you as a uh, 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 pledgling and do the ceremonies and he's your age. <laughs> and he's been ordained, he's over 60 because he took an uh, ordination at 20. He's been ordained as uh, 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 for 40 years and then hit 60 years old, he will ordain another 60 year old man and they're equal. Everyone is equal in the Dhamma that they don't have all of these strikes and uh, how many years like you have in the military. 
but they do have a bit of a tradition that I will talk about. And that is, is that it's the first five years of coordination that you are under the, um, uh, the care of the Upajaya and the Acha. And you go where they tell you to go and you stay where they tell you to stay and they will send you to various teachers and whatnot like that. After five years, you're free to travel anywhere you want to go. After 10 years, you can actually become the Achan under an Upajaya and take students on your own at the end of 10 after 10 years. After 20 years, you can become the um, the abbot of a Wat. That's a Mahathera uh, or a Thera. And then a Mahathera is someone who has been ordained for more than 40 years. And so those and those are the ones that they want to have as an Upajaya. That's why almost always the Upajaya are really, really old men. They've been around so long. So, Robert, I think you had a question at one time. Um, yeah, a couple of comments. Um, so one is, uh, you know, the poem that was in the middle of the his answer to the question, he said that the official that had become enlightened said that he practices Zazen in between his official duties. Um, and I think that's a, a neat way of finding seclusion, you know, uh, throughout the day um, in ordinary life. Um, and another thing that what you were saying just reminded me of a moment ago is um, um, I, I was listening to a, a podcast also with the Zen master today, and he was talking about how um, in the koan system, you know, they have these elaborate systems of koans where the, the masters will give the students a little phrase to meditate on. Um, they generally give the hardest hitting koans at the beginning, the ones that are most likely to cause you to have Kensho or enlightenment. And it reminds me of what you were saying about uh, having the tutelage of the Upajaya at the very beginning. It's like they want to give you the best quality Dhamma right at the beginning so you can mm -hmm join the show you know <laughs> and i thought that was kind of interesting right that's that's true so what i would like for us to do with this conversation is to understand that it it is kind of like a house with two rooms and a door between so that lay life and sangha life is a there's a there's a passageway between the two of them that you don't have to look like it in Christianity. You're either one or the other. No, within uh, the tradition of the Buddha, it's a revolving door. Sometimes you feel like a monk, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you're in the ropes of a monk, and sometimes you're not. <laughs> it's not that big a deal. The problem with the uh, Western Buddhism is we don't have an opportunity either to see that or to participate in it. Because it's not like Thailand. I mean, every little village has a Wat in Thailand, and the young kids they go to the Wat for various reasons, and then they, uh, when they go to the to the Wat uh, to let us say ordain, when they ordain, they're with their actual real uncles. It's already family. It's already family there. <laughs> go ahead, Robert. <laughs> well, one of the things Dogen was saying is that seeing a distinction between the sangha life and the lay life is itself a mark of delusion and yes and, yes yeah 
Exactly so. That's the mark of delusion is to see that I have to make a choice of either one or the other, or in fact, you know, the revolving door is just a matter of what kind of clothes that you're going to be wearing. And that's more of a, a, a tradition anyway. That in Thailand, uh, especially at big watch like Wat Su and Mok, uh, there will be a number of lay people that are living at the watch. They live there full time. I've also seen it to where I remember one time a guy came. And really what happened was he was broken hearted. He had lost the love, the girl of his love, and he was actually sent to Watson Mo by his family to get him away from it all. And he spent about four months at the watch. And it was a major transformation for him. That's all it took was about four months. And then he left. He never did ordain, but he got a lot of Dhamma while he was there. <laughs> And so this is what we need to find in the West is the community where we can share the Dhamma and learn the Dhamma from each other. And that one of the things that I have to say about it is, is that there, there are so many Asians now in the West and so many watchers, there's like 200 Taiwats in the United States and another 200 from Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, uh, a few Burmese, a few... Uh, and so um, getting with the Asians and going to the temple, spending more and more time there, hanging out there, going on Friday evening and just sleeping on the floor and, and begin to have some time at the Wat to be around other nobles. The problem with the Western society is that when you go out Western society, the likelihood of you coming across people who are noble-minded is very low. Very low. And so many people who start to practice Dhamma on their own because they've read a book or they've uh, listened to a tape or their own Reddit or whatnot like that, they begin very quickly to recognize that they're in a noble desert. That there is no nobody who is a friend. An example of that is if someone is an alcoholic and they visit the bar, when they join AA, then the AA will say, you have to stay out of the bar, come to stay and make friends with the people who are already in AA. That you will have a sponsor or a monitor or someone like that that you can call if you feel like getting drunk. Don't go to your drinking buddies to tell them that I'm a teetotaler. Okay, but the problem with that is uh, uh, there's not enough Dhamma around for the various AAs. So when someone wants to come out of their misery and suffering, there's basically no place for them to go because they don't even understand that there's probably a Buddhist temple someplace in the vicinity. And so this is the way that you talk about it, rather than seeing that it is two different worlds. See them as same, basically, maybe just say that this is the other side of the room that you're in. It's not two rooms with a door between them, it's just the same room. And you can go back and forth across the room easily. Uh, and the tradition is to ordain up to seven times. But 
in the West, we're probably going to have to do that in a different way for a while. And that is just to, number one, we have to find Shonda. We have to find people who are good friends. This, and we can do this online. They're actually doing this with the uh, 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 Skype. Of finding ways to gain people to to get together to learn each other so that they can uh, communicate at a noble level with each other and and so this is the way that we would uh, practice to build sangha in the west so that then it does uh, become possible for someone to live a lay life and yet move the other side of the room and find his noble friends over there. And then the next morning he moves back to the other side of the room. This is the way that we want to practice uh, this if we can set that kind of system up. Now, in that regard, uh, taking care of those buttons that we were talking about before, getting your buttons pushed or getting those uh, open wounds uh, tampered with, uh that's actually a good thing to do is to recognize that there's the room so that you could go to the noble side and do some healing get some cleaning out and then go back to the other side of the room and get beat up again and then go back to the noble side and heal until you get used to getting beat up and it doesn't matter that you're beat up anymore because you've done quite a lot of healing and so moving back and forth between the Sangha and uh, the ordinary world is the right way to do it so that we feel comfortable and friendly and whole and safe, whatever environment that we're in. And so this is the way to practice, but we have to do it with finding nobles. We can't just be in the world and then have maybe a little bit of meditation and then come back into the world and then maybe a little meditation and then back in the world. No, it actually requires noble friends. That this is, a, uh, I see that more and more that uh, the Buddha, we have to give him credit for it. After all that he did do, and by the way, he had a Sangha when he left home. He took a crowd with him. We're not sure exactly how many, but we do know that he took a horse and the and the groom and one of his old teachers and several other people. So when he went, he went already in a, in a group and that that group stayed with him up until uh, wherever he went. They went too, and they were his comrades in the spiritual practice until he figured out that what he was doing, starving himself, wasn't working. And so he made a change and he got fat. And when they saw how much weight he had gained, they left him and says, hey, man, he's off the path. We're going to stay on the path. But then when he did become enlightened, a few, about six weeks later, he came back to them and, and taught them. So he had kind of an instant sangha already. The first um, sermon that he gave was uh, another noble. Pandana became noble in the first talk. The second talk is the prior sermon, and the rest of the crowd became enlightened in the second. So that was the beginning of the Sangha right then and there. The first thing the Buddha did was create a Sangha. 
and we've had Sangha ever since. We don't have to be a unique off on our own Buddha that got it on our own, but that kind of person is very rare and not all of them are absolutely complete. An example of that was Jesus. Jesus taught noble. Everything he did was noble right up until the time that he walked in the temple and threw the tables over. And he was dead a week later. He screwed that up big time. He should have gone to Caiaphas and say, hey, Caiaphas, why don't we just move all of these uh, money changer tables outside the temple? That way you guys inside the temple will have more room. You don't have to have all of this animal poop and everything like that. <laughs> and and Caiaphas would probably thought that was a good idea. But no, Jesus went in there against the uh, uh, the actual procedures. And that's why he was crucified. But before that happened, everything that you see, I mean, he had his sangha, 12 disciples. They traveled around. He says the birds of the fields have their nests and the foxes of the field have their nests, but the son of man has no place to rest his head. He was homeless. He lived in the woods. He traveled around. So that does not mean then that the Buddha was absolutely unique among humanity, that others have come across it also, but it takes a certain kind of circumstances. But once we have Sangha already formed, let's use the Sangha that we have to help each one individually bootstrap themselves into the noble mindset. That, it, that we always can get a little help from our friends if we've got noble friends. And so this is the point then about uh, are you in the Sangha or not? And it does the Sangha have to have specific clothing with a specific set of rules staying in a specific place? Or can you have Sangha simply because your friends are noble? That's what is Sangha anyway, is the nobility of the mind state of the friends that we have. And so we can remain uh, as a layman, but we need to have the noble friends. And if we have the opportunity to spend time in what and live with nobles, then that's the best way to do it. But we can still do that in and out and in and out in the sense of go practice, go get your mind cleaned out, go get your wounds healed, and then come back to the world and get beat up again. <laughs> and then come back into seclusion, get your mind together, clean your mind out, get uh, uh, the, uh, the wounds healed, and then go back into it again. The second time we go back into it, we probably won't get into such a, uh, a mess because we're friendly with people who used to beat us up. Now we can become friends with them because we know that if we are friends with them, they'll probably beat up on us a little bit less than they used to. And so this happens with wives, it happens with uh, workmates, it happens with the guys in the bar, everybody in the world is an opportunity to present yourself and those newly healed wounds just to check to see are these wounds still healed or are they opening? That we can begin to test ourselves. 
we can do that. One, in fact, one of my favorites, the one that I have left is Beezus. I talk about Beezus often. Last couple of times that I've had Beezus, I just walk right in there and smile and hand the paperwork. The guy does this, that, and the other thing, and I walk out of that, and I go like this and says, you know, at least I know how to do it now. <laughs> and in the old days, it was a lot of work. One of the things, and by the way, that I figured out, this was a hard one to figure out, and that is, is that when, I, when you go in for a work visa, the lady behind the desk does not want to see us. And I thought that, oh, I have abused her in the past. Let me be especially friendly. I did figure out, by the way, that it wasn't me that she hated. It was the fact that this was a retirement visa, and it's a whole lot of work for me and a whole lot of work for her, and I've just brought her a whole lot of work to do. But I can be at least as friendly and beautiful with her as I can be. Helping to make her job easier is by making sure that every, every page is correct. Got everything done. That she does not have to just throw it back in my face and say, here, you didn't do this, and you didn't do that, and you didn't do this other thing. You got it correct. So this is an issue for me that you can see that that's the way that we deal with the whole world. So that I can walk in there and get that visa done and everybody's happy. Because I got the skills to do it. That's about the only thing I've got left. <laughs> so everybody can find their own visa office to find out what is it in your life that you have to keep doing and you mess it up every time you do it. And then you go back and you say, okay. Well, let's figure out how to get it right so that when it's done, everybody wins. Everybody's happy at the end. Of it. This is the way that we can handle going in and out, back and forth, go back into the world, um, have a ball, help some people. Everybody's happy. And then you go back home and you sit down. Nothing to do, a place to go. There's your size bin again. And so we can go from our duties, just like the king that uh, uh, Dojin was talking about, the magistrate, he has duties. Go do your duty. Whatever your duties are, go do your duty. My duty every year, once a year, is to get that big visa done. That's the duty. And I can do my duty happily. With the lay life, there's going to be a lot of duties. Go do your duties. And when your duties are finished, go have a ball. Go enjoy your life. Sit down and do nothing. And just sigh with relief. I've <laughs> done my duties. Miguel, has this helped you with uh, uh, getting you some ideas about how to how to do things? This was your question originally. Yes, it's given me some uh, really good ideas. Thank you. Great. Well, I'm about finished with this. Uh, does anybody else have anything to say? Now that Miguel's got some ideas about what he's going to do with this. You talked about originally a couple of sons. So those sons, those that's your duty. Go do your duty to your son so that they wind up winners and you do too, and then you can take a hike. 
that's right. <laughs> yep, the last one's leaving the house. So. <laughs> congratulations. Well, wow, congratulations. What a relief that is. <laughs> uh, actually, I have something. Oh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I have something on that topic. So, um, so my girlfriend is away for the weekend, uh, taking care of some stuff in her hometown that needs to be taken care of. And it's our first time being apart for more than 24 hours since January. And, and it feels really weird because I used to love being alone and now I've, I felt quite lonely today and, and, you know, like I really miss her and wish she were here, et cetera. So, um, I understand Miguel, the emptiness. <laughs> Although for me it's the weekend, but um, yeah, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that, uh, Domerado. Yes, that in fact when we are around other people and then we're not, we recognize that when they left, now there's an emptiness. There is um, a, a space that they used to fill, and that space was there all along, and we didn't know it. That emptiness was already there, but we had popped someone or something or some job or some uh, uh, duty into that space. And so now we can recognize what we're talking about here uh, from that dojo. And that's really good about the, the issue of the duties and then the practice. So recognize that when she's there, that she takes up that space, that she's your duty. But then when she's not there, it's empty. Enjoy the emptiness. Enjoy the fact that she's not there. Wow, what a relief. She's gone. I can feel it. I'm not going to get beat up today. <laughs> and Eric. Any any thoughts? Any questions? I mean, you you're already living that kind of life that we've been talking about on this talk today, anyway. Yeah, this has been a really good talk. I always love hearing about sangha. <laughs> That's what this is all about. So, where are you today? I'm in Alabama. Oh my goodness. Wow, so that's quite an opportunity to go get your buttons pushed. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> so, Ricardo, you've joined the call. Uh, do you have anything to say? <laughs> Thanks, all, right. <laughs> all right robert i'll give you the yeah. last word <laughs> oh, oh i have another thought you know um so it seems to me like uh duties can actually bring joy right you know like uh like there's kind of that old saying um oh go do your duties so you'll get your mind off whatever your mind is on right you know or keep busy you know an idle an idle mind is 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 no fun. Something along those lines, right? The idle uh, mind is the devil's workshop. So the Catholics say. I don't think that that's in the Bible at all. It's just what some old phrase. <laughs> Actually, a busy mind 
is the devil's workshop. Because look at all the stuff that he, I mean, an idol mind is not the devil's workshop. He doesn't want to be in a night. <laughs> he wants to go do something. <laughs> so they've got that one wrong. They, uh, uh, and the whole point was is that they want people to be busy to contribute to the society. Guess what? The society has been built and built and built for centuries and centuries. And every time somebody does something, it's improved. Don't you think that it's good enough now? I mean, look how much improvements have been done. Look how many times people have gotten busy and done something to help society. Maybe it's good enough now and doesn't need our help. So we can keep our idle mind and don't have to deal with the devil at all. But Sometimes there's duty. Sometimes the devil does come knocking. Let's make sure that when the devil of duty comes knocking, that we can meet him happily, do the duty, do our devil work happily, make the devil happy and let him leave so we can go back and have our idle workshop again. With nothing to do and no place to go and just enjoy life. So this is the way that we can handle being lay life, that, that lay life does not prevent one from being noble. It gives one an opportunity to practice being noble. That ordination is not the only path. But there's one last thing that I'll add to that, and that is, is that we still have to maintain a little bit of fear because things are dangerous. The world is dangerous. That if you are in your group of nobles, it's not dangerous. So if you are absolutely completely free from fear, it's better for your wisdom to keep yourself around nobles all the time because going around ignobles is dangerous. And you don't have any fear, so you don't have a way of managing that. That's why in the sutras it talks about that if someone does become a complete arahat, he needs to ordain and be among the nobles because he is completely free from fear and he should not go into dangerous places. Here we're talking about going into the dangerous places only so that we can help heal the wounds. Once we have the healed wounds, ultimately we want to make sure that we live in a safe environment. That's the only point. But since you guys are not Arahats and you do have fear, let your fear teach you what to do, where to go, and what to avoid in the world. Let it be your teacher so that your so your wisdom will take over and you can do things wisely rather than out of fear. Or you can avoid things wisely rather than avoiding them out of fear. Yeah, this yeah. is something. Yeah, this is something I've learned since the the incident in the park, you know, a week and a half, or almost two weeks ago. Um, is that fear can actually be wholesome <laughs> if it's protecting <laughs> you and keeps you alive. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> You know, if you don't let it get you carried away um, to the point where you're inventing things to be afraid of, but you just keep it on a low simmer 
um, to keep you aware and awake, uh, that no, can be very beneficial. It's all really quick. Yeah. Okay, guys. Well, this has been a really good talk. I'm really glad that we talked about family and ordination. This is a new way of looking at it. And thank you so much, Robert, for reading that stuff, because that's really helpful for us to understand. Right way of looking at it is, yeah, we can do our duty and then we can go hang out happily. And then we can come back and happily do our duty and then leave and go back and be, be happy again. But in fact, even the monks have duties at the watch. Right. So what's the point? I don't see much distinction between ordination and, and lay life. They're, they're just two sides of the same room. Indeed. Claro, as we, or claro, as we say in Spanish. <laughs> Thank you, guys. We'll see you later. All right. See you guys later. Take see care. Guys. Have a great one. Cheers.